Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Thomas L. Wiggum about the second volume of his history of the Paraguayan War, entitled The Road to Armageddon, Paraguay versus the Triple Alliance. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Good to talk with you. Good talk with you, too. I wonder if you could start us off by telling the listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm uh, a professor at the University of Georgia. I teach Latin American history. Um, I was uh, born in San Diego, uh, spent a lot of time in Latin America and Central America in in Mexico and and down in Paraguay and Argentina over the years. Uh, I got my degree at Stanford back in... uh, 1985, and I've been at Georgia since 86, and um, uh, devoted to the uh, topic of Paraguayan history for a very, very long time indeed. Um, What led you to write a history of the Paraguayan War? Well, the very first time I was in Paraguay was in 1973, when I worked in a program which is a little bit like the Peace Corps and um, went into the countryside in Paraguay. And what I discovered was a a country and a people who were um, poor, uh, who had very few options in life, who lived under a a, a dictatorship, and yet they had a absolutely amazing history, a, a history full of all sorts of wonderful and mysterious aspects that very, very few people outside of Paraguay had ever even heard of. So uh, when I went off to school later to um, graduate school, I thought that would be something I would want to work on. And uh, I went back when I was uh, working on my PhD and got to know the archives real well in, in Paraguay and also in Argentina and Brazil. And then having completed a, a dissertation on the economics of 19th century uh, Paraguay, that area, Um, I went back and decided to devote myself to the topic that the Paraguayans regard as the big topic in their history, which is the War of 1864 to 1870, sometimes called the Triple Alliance War, sometimes called the Great War. It's got many different names. Most commonly, I suppose, it's the Paraguayan War. But it's their great moment in the same way that the war between the states is the great moment for many people in the South. Um, and it's, it's that definitive kind of thing for Paraguayans. Um, and other than the fact that other uh, Americans or other scholars even were aware that the Paraguayans regarded this thing as important, they really didn't know anything about it. So um, I wanted to throw some light on it. It's a war in which Paraguay uh, fights Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. So the fairly little Paraguay lasts um, six years in a conflict 
with the, the greater part of the continent. And that in itself struck me as a kind of an epic tale that ought to be told properly, if for no other reason than to try to summon up the history uh, that was once so big and now seems so obscure to certain people. So um, uh, that's really why I wanted to get into it. And also, um, you know, we live in a, in a funny kind of environment where you can't really afford to deal with the, the top story in your field until you get tenure in the, in the university. So once I got tenure, I said, well, now I want to do this big topic. And um, it was um, uh, sort of challenging. Most people do not decide to do that because it's, it's even too risky. And, of course, in Spanish, the, 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 uh, the, the study has three quite large volumes. So it's a, it's a big thing. I spent 20 years working on it in one way or the other. Down there in South America, um, they have uh, – you'll have an Argentine historian who's done work on the war. You'll have a Paraguayan historian. You'll have a Brazilian historian. But n these people mostly cannot afford to travel and to consult the archives in the other countries. Um, so you very, very rarely encounter somebody who's in a position to uh, work in the 20 or 25 archives that you need to work on just to get a fairly comprehensive grasp of what was actually happening. And I really wanted to be that guy. And uh, uh, that's why it took so long, because you can't just snap your fingers and have this stuff appear to you overnight. Um, but of course, um, as I learned more and more and more going through the archives, I became uh, more and more familiar with things. Uh, I began to uh, uh, have a broader vision, I think. Uh, um, and this is something that down there is very much appreciated because um, if I were a Brazilian, the Paraguayans would think that I was parroting some kind of Brazilian position on the war. Uh, or if I were an Argentine, the same thing. But as an American, a North American, um, everybody seems to feel that I don't have a, a party. I don't have a, uh, uh, a pony in the particular race. Hence, they take it for granted that I'm going to be more objective. Whether that's true or not is, is, um, is, is another question. I mean, you, as you learn more about things, you learn to like certain people, you learn to like certain things, you learn to appreciate certain decisions, and you learn to really detest other ones. So um, uh, that's really... Uh, how I got into it. Um, that that argument uh, that you just the point you just made about the about uh, how you know having the, the the pony in the race, so to speak, is a very interesting one. Considering what you describe in uh, the first volume, this this being the second of a two volumes uh, 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 history, which is yeah. that this is a war that is of enormous importance, not just for Paraguay, not just for Argentina, not even just for Brazil and 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 Uruguay, or even all four of them. But really, as you explained, it's so important for the history of the entire continent in in, in so many ways. Yeah, um, there's an interesting book that was written quite a while ago by Herman Hathaway called "Why the South Lost the Civil War." And towards the end of the book, he makes a very striking observation. And what he says is, if the Southerners had fought like the Paraguayans, they would have won their independence. So let's say for the sake of argument that that's true. It's, of course, hard to know when you're arguing counterfactuals. But that puts the Paraguayan War in a particular kind of uh, interesting perspective. And even from the vantage point of people who are trying to understand 
um, how to fight war in the here and now. Um, every uh, reasonable defense ministry in the world are, uh, needs to ask the question of how am I going to emerge victorious over enemy A or enemy B? And that's often a question um, which you can rationalize, uh, but it all depends on culture. So, for example, in World War II, the Germans, when they were uh, when a third of their contingent would be whittled down by the Allies, the Germans tended to surrender. Whereas you could whittle down nine tenths of the Japanese, and they wouldn't surrender. It's a cultural question. Something like that is true about Paraguay, because Paraguay has the dubious distinction of being the bloodiest war in terms of the numbers of lives lost per total population, uh, really in the continent. Uh, the Paraguayans lost certainly over 60% of their population. There's a lot of debate about how much, but uh, there doesn't seem to be too much debate about what I just said. It might be as much as 70 or 75%, which is a striking figure, because normally, as you know, when you start to lose that kind of, uh, uh, you take those sorts of losses, um, you, you, you give up, but they didn't give up. And uh, that, too, is one of those questions that I wanted to try to explore and to understand. Um, and it told me a lot about the politics of, of South America at that particular time, too. So anyway, it's a very interesting uh, business. That's why I wanted to get into it. Now, when you start this volume, you start it with the invasion by the Triple Alliance of Paraguay. Before yeah. we get to that, I wonder if you could explain a bit uh, the uh, context of the conflict and the first year or so of it that you cover in the first volume. Yeah. In the first volume, the subtitle to the first volume is Causes and Early Conduct. I spent a whole bunch of time trying to talk about what, in a sense, are very complex causes. Um, the uh, First of all, when independence came to South America, really all over the Americas, there were many unanswered questions. There were unanswered questions about political forms. Should uh, a country become an oligarchy? Should it become a monarchy? Should it become an authoritarian kind of uh, a regime? All of these things were open. The idea of what is the proper political future for this part of the world? Also, the issue of boundaries. Okay, you're creating nations, but what does that mean? And who owns what? And what are the optimal kinds of things for people as a whole and for folks locally? Uh, all of those things, it seems to me, were open issues uh, in the early part of the 19th century, leading right up into the middle part of the 19th century. And, uh, I mean, I can... Uh, um, Sometimes people want a one-sentence uh, uh, description of, of what the causes of the war is, and I say human folly, because there are so many occasions where people could have chosen to do something else, and instead they embarked on uh, 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 violence. Um, the, the cultural differentiation between the Brazilians, the Argentines, and the Paraguayans is particularly noteworthy. Paraguay was an, an isolated inland country in which the great majority of the people were uh, monolingual in the Guarani language. So they spoke an Indian language. These are not Indian peoples, but they speak an Indian language, which is uh, something I'm actually working on right now. It goes way back into the, into the history of that part of the world. But in any case, 
languages convey certain attitudes. And um, there was a certain kind of national cohesion in Paraguay, even before there was a nation, because people had this same uh, linguistic framework. Uh, by contrast, in Brazil, while it's true everybody spoke Portuguese, you couldn't say that somebody from Rio was like somebody from Bahia or somebody from Porto Alegre was like somebody from Belém. Uh, they needed the monarch uh, in the person of Don Pedro to sort of bring them together. And even then, it was a fairly incomplete kind of thing. In Argentina, the, the, the divisions had to do between the dominant city, Buenos Aires, and the interior provinces, the provinces especially along the rivers. So you see there are a, a, a dozen different ways of looking how all of this fits together. And then there were a series of, in many ways, accidents that happened in the early 1860s in which the Paraguayans got pulled into broader um, questions in the Platine Basin, in the place, basin of the Rio de la Plata. Uh, when the Brazilians decided to intervene in a civil war in Uruguay, uh, the government in Uruguay had diplomats that had gone to Paraguay, and these diplomats convinced the dictator of Paraguay, whose name was Francisco Solano Lopez, that Paraguayan interests, that Paraguayan uh, solidity were at stake. If he didn't do something and Uruguay was overrun, it would mean that the balance of power in the region uh, would favor his own country being next. He would, his country would be attacked next. Now, as a matter of fact, I always thought that this idea didn't work very well, that um, balance of power notions work really well when there's actually a balance. But Brazil was bigger in terms of population and bigger in terms of the economy, uh, uh, bigger than Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay put together. So I don't think there is a balance of power. But Solano Lopez became convinced that there was. And so he went to war, to simplify something that's not simple, um, uh, to defend this sort of illusory concept. You know, we need to uh, push the big guys back in order to have peace here. You could say it is sort of aspirational. He wanted to be a big cheese within the politics of the region. But the real bottom line is that um, uh, he decided that the, uh, the Brazilians had upset the proper political order in the region, and that had to be challenged. Uh, nobody, I think, was thinking that there would be uh, a six-year war. Uh, in fact, I think the, the Allies, uh, they presumed that the Paraguayans would fold very quickly. As for the offensive stage, um, uh, uh, the Paraguayans attack north and they attack south uh, at the same time. And um, uh, in the north, they enjoy a little bit of success in seizing some of the districts in the Mato Grosso area of Brazil. But in the south, it's a, it's a much more complex issue because if they were going to uh, rush to the aid of the Uruguayans, which is their, their stated objective, then they would have to cross Argentine territory and violate neutral Argentine rights. Well, so they asked the Argentine government for, for permission, which the Argentines refused. And so the uh, Paraguayans attacked the Argentines. So uh, you're either with me or you're against me, seems to be their approach. 
in terms of the offensive, the Paraguayans really made a lot of big mistakes. And uh, the, the, it's true that the Allies were um, surprised. It's true that they didn't um, react terribly well. But the Paraguayan um, advance didn't have any logical conclusion. Exactly where, where were they marching to? Um, I think uh, in, in war, you need to have firm commitments from your purported allies. And the Paraguayans didn't have this from anybody downriver. So the bottom line is... Over the next year, the Paraguayans lose about a third of their army. And at the end of that, they cross back over into uh, Paraguay. They cross the Paraná Paraná River. And that's really where the second volume comes in, Uh, the the defensive uh, uh, era, uh, which is going to last from the beginning of 1866 until 1870. One of the things that you point out in throughout the second volume at, at, at various stages is how the expectation that the Allies uh, – that frequently crops up among the Allies that surely this development or this victory will bring about a Paraguayan uh, a surrender or, or a concession of some sort and that it doesn't speak to the nature of the – Paraguayan regime, which, as you've illustrated in both volumes, is one in which you and, – and this also, I think, speaks – as you were referring to the Paraguayan character, the degree of resiliency and, and, and commitment that is uh, – that the Paraguayans and Lopez in particular invest in this war. Yeah, um, I think it has a lot – the best way to understand it, it seems to me, is to make a comparison between the way the Brazilians thought of their armed force and the way the uh, Paraguayans thought of theirs. The Brazilians um, uh, uh, had a, a military that was founded in the monarchy, and it, which got perennially poor budgets. The monarchy was a weak – institution in many ways, and uh, the people who were at the top of it did not want to invest a lot of money in, a, in men in uniform who might overthrow the regime. Moreover, those same people, uh, the nobles who control the parliament and the, the emperor himself, were rather contemptuous of the uh, military. They, uh, the term for soldier that you saw most often was prasa, which means somebody who hangs around the plaza. It's a pejorative term. So the scum of the earth, let's put it that way, that's the way they regarded the military. So they they kept the standing army very weak and uh, rested instead on a model of uh, something like National Guards, which the Provincial Guards had lots of people in them, but they had no training at all, and the heads of the guards were the local big landowners. So they were uh, contemptuous of the military institution, and they didn't think uh, uh, that they were people who should be immolated. These are the people they're going to go to war with Paraguay over. Now, by contrast, the Paraguayans had already by the 1850s essentially a universal conscription. Um, Every Paraguayan man was in the army at some point, often a fairly good part of his life. And to give you an idea of the methods of building cohesion, of building esprit de corps within the army. Um, uh, the, uh, if you were uh, a rich man and you entered the, uh, the army, uh, you still had to take your shoes off. Every Paraguayan soldier was barefooted. 
The only Paraguayan uh, soldiers who weren't were the highest ranking officers. The colonels and the generals could wear their boots. Nobody else could. So it, uh, if you think about that for a minute, it provides a, a level of universality to the military experience. You couldn't have that kind of social division like the Brazilians had, where you look down on the soldiers when the soldiers were every man in the country. So uh, the, the, the Paraguayans had a militarized attitude. There was much that was paternalistic in it, in which the officers were, for all intents and purposes, the fathers of their men. And that there was nothing really comparable on the Brazilian side. So when you talk about resiliency, it really, I think, floats back largely to that, that these people are willing uh, to think of themselves as a family. And the war, which is now being fought on their country, is uh, a, a war against their family, against their wives, their children, their, the, the place that they call home. And uh, they don't understand the concept of surrender when it, the stakes are like that. Notice that they weren't willing to fight quite that well in Argentina or in Brazil, where they, uh, they were in somebody else's land. But in Paraguay, uh, they fought uh, uh, bravely and consistently. You know, I've often, um, I remember some years ago reading a book about the American invasion of Germany at the end of World War II. And the, the um, German women were surprised with the Americans because when they marched, they didn't make any noise because they didn't have any hobnails in their boots. Whereas, of course, the Wehrmacht hobnails made a lot of noise when they marched. Well, think about what it would be like for the Paraguayan army to march. They're all barefooted. So it would be like an army of ghosts. And that's the way the Allies started to think of them. Now, think about that for a moment in terms of the broader question of resistance. If they're ghosts, if they refuse to give up, then what do you do? And I think a lot of Allied soldiers in the field, they came to the same conclusion that many Americans came to in Guadalcanal, uh, which is the enemy won't give up. The only way to defeat him is to destroy him, is to kill every one of them. So there is uh, a, a, a huge amount of bloodletting uh, because the, the sense is the Paraguayans will never give up. We, we, we tend to look at this and say, you know, they're resilient, they're brave, and all of this sort of stuff, but it's a bravery that leads them to the tomb, too. And uh, if you've got the other side thinking that the only way that they can win is to slaughter you all, it's almost providing a key to a kind of, uh, of genocidal impulse that people have. Um, I don't think the Allies actually wanted to kill all the Paraguayans. This is actually a very controversial issue down there. But um, the bottom line is they, they came close to killing a lot of them. That's um, war in its cultural manifestation. It's, it's a very interesting business. I think that's what Hathaway is talking about. If the Southerners had really been the kind of soldiers that they tend to think they were, then they would have fought a very different way. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's also interesting because it contrasts with the allies who not only don't have that, but you're not talking about a unified uh, opponent for the Paraguayans. You're talking about three different opponents, each of whom uh, contribute something different to it. We, for example, with the invasion, what you describe, if I'm recalling correctly, is pre predominantly an, or is, is primarily an Argentinian force 
with Brazilian naval support. Uruguayans are participating as well. But at yeah. the start in 1866, uh, when, uh, when the alliance launches that invasion of Paraguay, the Argentinians are contributing the uh, majority of the troops. Well, it's um, uh, uh, each of the sides has, uh, among the allies, have a slightly different interpretation about what they want to get out of the war. Now, to the extent that there are land disputes that they can benefit from Paraguay, they want to win those. The Brazilians had some lands they contested with the Paraguayans in the north, the Argentines in the south. East side wanted to get those. That's something they had in common. But um, they looked at things slightly differently. Argentina, uh, in the colonial period, Paraguay had been a province under Buenos Aires when Buenos Aires was the viceregal seat. So in Argentine thinking, there was always this uh, supposition that somewhere down the line, even though, yes, we recognize the independence of Paraguay, Paraguay is going to rejoin with us, okay? Um, the, uh, the Brazilians uh, wanted the opposite to happen because in their view, the thing that they wanted the least to see was uh, a reconstituted viceroyalty down of the Plata, which would be stronger than the three uh, neighbors uh, considered separately. In the case of the Uruguayans, it's even easier still. The Uruguayans regard the Paraguayan War as a war of the Colorado Party. The the uh, uh, the, the Colorado Party's debt to the Brazilians and Argentines is paid off in blood by sending these guys up to fight the Paraguayans. The other uh, political party, the Blancos, down in in uh, Uruguay, do not consider. Uh, the part never considered the Paraguayans the enemy. And as a matter of fact, they tended to think of them as a rather distant friend. So each one of these groups has a very different way of looking at things. The Brazilians want to reconstitute the world as it existed before the war, just, uh, just with everybody on the other side weaker. Whereas the Argentines, they had a more, uh, a greater ambition now. Uh, but they also had more enemies so when their first efforts against the Paraguayans fail, the Argentines I'm referring here, um, there are going to be rebellions in the west of Argentina that have to be suppressed. And so they take troops from the Paraguayan front to send them to suppress those provincial revolts. And they never quite get the, the predominance uh, over the, um, the allied commitment in Paraguay after that point. And you could say that it's mostly a Brazilian effort from, oh, I don't know, certainly certainly the end of 1866, the beginning of 1867, is really mostly a Brazilian business in, in, in Paraguay. But if I can put one more thing in here, the Brazilians along the way discover that they cannot defeat the Paraguayans using their old methods of organization. Remember how I talked about this sort of provincial guard where the, where the leaders, the, the officers, would be just the big landowners. The, the Brazilians discovered that they can't win this way. They're, they're, they're not prevailing in the field. And so what they do is change the way that they approach the whole question. And they start uh, promoting successful officers, uh, putting them in positions of major leadership, even though these officers uh, had humble origins. They weren't part of the aristocratic elite. Uh, they weren't connected to the emperor in one way or the other. So these guys were the successful guys in the, in the field, but they had less devotion to the monarchical model. 
Now, why this is all interesting is in order to pay the, the social and cultural price of beating the Paraguayans, the Brazilians set themselves up for future political problems because once the army prevails, they don't really relish the idea of taking a secondary role in Brazil anymore. And so guys who ended the war as uh, majors and light colonels uh, 20 years later are generals and they overthrow the empire. So they, their, their view of, uh, uh, of their role is so different from the role that the Brazilian elites had at the beginning of the conflict. So this, in order to win that, they, they undergo a transformation. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, another really big issue. The, the, the Paraguayan war is sort of a catalyst for fundamental political changes in many areas in the continent. The Argentines gain complete control over the provinces for the first time. The, the people in Buenos Aires do the uh, Brazilians see the rise of the military, which something they had tried so hard to keep from happening. And the Paraguayans, um, uh, see their country more or less obliterated, a, a, um, a hollow shell of what it had once been. The, the country that changes the least because of the war, curiously, is the country that, so to speak, starts it, Uruguay, uh, where the, the, the patterns that were, had been there before more or less stay the same, certainly until the end of the 1870s, long after the war. So there's, uh, there's a, uh, a, the war is a sort of a crucible, creating a, a much more modern kind of political environment in that part of the world and leaving a lot of the older things behind, including the concept of monarchy. So anyway, it's very interesting. And, it's, and yet to get to that more modern uh, concept of, of, of South America, there's just, as you describe in the book, there's just so much bloodshed. The, the oh, battles absolutely. you describe are, are just uh, epic in, in terms of the uh, investment that these people put into it. Yeah, well, um, looking at, for example, the Battle of Tuyuti in uh, May of 1866, that's the biggest battle in terms of loss of life um, uh, in, uh, in South American history, uh, at least the South American history that we know. There, there were some battles in the Mexican Revolution that were probably bloodier, but in South America, the, the Paraguayans have, have got it. Uh, the, the Paraguayan struggle has really blood. They, they rival what happened to Chickamauga. Uh, and not as much as Gettysburg, but tens of thousands of people uh, being killed. So it's um, it's a bloody business. And of course, let's not forget that the technology of the time, almost the military technology, almost assured high loss of life. Uh, if you use mini balls rather than old musket balls, the chances are is very high that uh, if you hit the guy. Because uh, 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 many balls are made out of lead, and they they flatten as they hit the body, and then they spread out, and then they'll tear right through somebody. So chances are the um, the the loss of life is going to be extremely high. People are going to be shot are going to are going to die, and the ones who survive are almost certainly going to lose limbs, as they did in the U.S. Civil War. So um, the tactics that were used by the by the commanding officers on both sides tended to be very indifferent towards loss of life. So um, in the Battle of Curupaytu in September of 66, that was a Paraguayan victory. And the, uh, the Allies um, uh, basically send their whole army to assault in a mass wave 
uh, prepared Paraguayan positions. The Paraguayans held on to those positions and they kept firing. And um, the I think what happened is that the Allies uh, thought that they had um, suppressed the artillery. Uh, the Navy reported that they had pretty much brought the Paraguayan art, taken the Paraguayan artillery out of the picture. And in fact, they hadn't even touched them. So when the, uh, the when the Paraguayan when the Allied troops uh, advance in echelon, they're just mowed down. So it's very much like Pickett's Charge. Um, in fact, I'm trying to remember, I think it's something like six or seven thousand uh, Allied troops are killed, and only fifty four Paraguayans. It's a real wild difference because the Paraguayans were down in their holds, and the Allies were out facing all of the blood. That's the one place where they really made that crucial mistake. On other occasions, it's the Paraguayans who do exactly the same thing. All around, you see people dying. And I'm not even mentioning things like disease uh, and like uh, medical problems, starvation, uh, and the, the, the pain experienced by the civilian population, which is almost as uh, catastrophic, really. And there's an aspect to this that we haven't even discussed yet, which is that when all this is happening, Paraguay has been under an effective blockade since the start of the war in 1864. So whereas the Allies are at least receiving supplies, the Paraguayans are not getting basic medicines. They're not even getting enough food to eat. That's right. Uh, One can make a lot out of this, of course. But Paraguay, uh, given its geographical placement in the continent – tended to you know, fall back on its own resources no matter what. But it's, it's one thing to fall back on your own resources in times of peace. But in war, how do you keep going? And that's where I would point to a really quite impressive system of logistics that the Paraguayan uh, state sets up, uh, where they bring food, where they bring um, cattle, uh, where they bring uh, supplies down from the north to the front in the south, uh, sometimes on canoes, sometimes on people's backs, sometimes in ox carts. It's very surprisingly modern and well-arranged kind of logistical support. It's intriguing because when you think about it for a minute, while it's true that the Brazilians had uh, access to greater supplies, they had more rifles, for example, those rifles all had to come down the coast, then up the rivers uh, uh, to to Paraguay to supply the Allied armies, whereas the um, it, it, with the Paraguayans the 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 interior lines are going to definitely favor them. Uh, um, uh, my real point is that the Paraguayans in this particular way are quite surprisingly competent, uh, putting together a, a really quite impressive thing. They even um, uh, put together a uh, an iron foundry which forged cannon. Uh, which is kind of saying something too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's many aspects of the war that are curiously modern. The uh, the uh, Brazilians, for a season, use observation balloons to try to sight out where the Paraguayans are setting up their defenses. Um, the uh, the rip the rivers are uh, clogged with uh, ironclad ships, just like monitors and and the Merrimack in the, in the U.S. Civil War. Um, and uh, uh, over and over again, you see these kinds of things. There's a, a telegraph system that the Paraguayans use, and it keeps getting cut by the Allies and keeps being reconstituted by the Paraguayans. It's a fascinating story, uh, and it really does show how 
um, people can put up with some really quite tremendous uh, um, uh, challenges and still manage to keep going. Um, that they would go to this extent, um, I don't know if it's, if it's something that you want to admire or something that you might want to condemn, but it's hard not to look at it and it leaves your mouth open saying, boy, human beings are really something. So could you then perhaps summarize for us the, 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 how the war uh, develops between uh, the invasion in 1866 and then uh, the, the, the fall of Asuncion and uh, then subsequently the, uh, the, the death of Lopez? Okay. Um, the, um, uh, since before the war, the Paraguayans had been putting a lot of effort into building a fortress on the Paraguay River in the south. This fortress is called Umaita, and it's at a particular bend in the Paraguay River where the Paraguay River um, uh, 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 becomes uh, uh, thinner, and therefore the volume of water pushing fat, the current pushes uh, hard uh, uh, against the ships that would be coming upriver. Now, if you, if you put a fortress there and you put embouchures, uh, um, uh, with cannons on them, any force coming up the river is going to come under fire. So the uh, allies want to knock this fortress out. And the Paraguayan attitude is this is going to be the linchpin of our defense, sort of like Petersburg in the, in the Civil War. So the first stage, the allies and the Paraguayans are involved in some very big battles. Estero Bellaco, Tuyuti, Kurusu, these are all fought in uh, 1866, uh, and um, they are big bloodletting kinds of things. What happens is the Allies establish a foothold down there in the south, but they're not able to advance on Umaita. And so the Allied High Command, from that point onward, decide they're going to approach the, uh, the campaign in a slow attrition. Uh, many foreign observers said it was too slow. It gave the, uh, the Paraguayans the chance to move their troops around, build trench works, uh, set up cannons, and, and make the, the, the war much more protracted. Eventually, as I say, the, um, the command devolved into the hands of much more professional officers uh, under the Brazilian General Caxias. And they start to uh, make their attrition more effective. You have to understand that on the Paraguayan side, while they can win battles, it's almost impossible for them to win the war uh, because uh, the the, st- the strategic angle is all in favor of the Allies. There's there's no way you can lose more people, but as as long as the Allies are willing to take the offensive again next week, then you haven't really won anything. So. Um, I think I would say that between 66, or well, 67 and 68, Umaita holds on. And then finally, Umaita starts to fade, and Lopez, who has been held, held up there at that particular time, crosses the western river to the west, and then moves around and recrosses the river further north. After that point, it's clear that Umaita is going to fall, which it does. The Allied armies try to follow Lopez, and they attack the remnants of the Paraguayan army uh, in December of 1868. 
and pretty much defeat it uh, uh, pretty uh, uh, distinctly. Interestingly enough, Lopez manages to slip away. Another very controversial thing because nobody has ever been quite willing to um, explain how he was able to get away. I've been to that part of Paraguay more than one time, and I think the answer is very simple. Somebody just messed up. Uh, it's, I don't, I don't think you, I don't think you need a big explanation, Both the Paraguayans and the allies always look for big explanations on this. I don't think there is a big explanation. Somebody just screwed up. They didn't follow properly. So what it means is he's able to get away into the, um, uh, Eastern districts in the hill country and try to put an army back together. Now, by that time, the army is going to consist only of adolescent children and very, very old men. I have, uh, for example, a whole series of recruitment uh, rosters uh, that date from this time. And it's fascinating to look at these things because you've got children and you've got extremely old men. I remember um, uh, of the guys who were over 60 in this one town, there were men in their 90s. And there was one guy who was 101 who was being brought into the army. So uh, that's, the, that's the direction the Paraguayans were going. They weren't going in the direction of, well, let's negotiate peace. No, no. They want to keep fighting. Meanwhile, the, the Paraguayan capital, Asuncion, falls to the Allies. You'd think that what they would do would be uh, to uh, turn east and defeat Lopez. But in fact, it takes them a long time even to do that. First of all, because Casillas was sick. Secondly, because he was using the old way of thinking that when the enemy's capital falls, you've won the war. Now, Clausewitz and Jomini and other people would tell you that's not so. If you want to win the war, you have to defeat the enemy um, and not let him build up again. Uh, but also, in, uh, in Asuncion, the Brazilians and the Argentines, and even among the Brazilians, are arguing with each other about what should happen next. And uh, those arguments don't reflect very well on them as occupying powers, and they make the struggle last longer. In the interior, that's never an issue. The, um, the Paraguayans create a new capital at uh, Piribebui, and even though, as I say, it's, they've got armies composed of adolescents, uh, they're not precisely going away. And it's only uh, in mid-1869 uh, when a new Allied commander, who's the the Count Du, who is the son-in-law of the emperor, shows up, that they decide that they're going to move on Lopez. I think that they thought of it as sort of a police action. Let's just hunt this guy down. And that really enters the last phase of the war, which is profoundly sad, because uh, whole populations are starving to death. Um, Lopez takes uh, uh, large contingents of the civilians following what's left of his army, and all of them are starving. So it's, a, it's a just a, absolutely a horrible. We have very good accounts of people who were part of this, which are, are very interesting but deeply tragic. And in the end, um, the Brazilians finally managed to catch up uh, in a place in a, uh, with Lopez in a place in the extreme northeast of the country, and uh, he's challenged his, his, um, his men died around him, the little, what's left of his army, you know, only couple hundred men are pretty much killed and he's the last guy there standing in the mud of the creek with his sword uplifted and the Brazilian general calls on him to surrender 
and he yells out the words which have become the Paraguayan national motto, basically, which is uh, uh, muero con mi patria. I will not surrender. I die with my country. That's the that, and that's the end of the war. Um, that he that yeah he died with his country and he took all of his country with him. Uh, a, a, a an enormous uh, statement about the price that people will pay for patriotism. Uh, quite an interesting thing. You've already uh, mentioned some of the uh, consequences of the war for uh, Brazil, for example. I was wondering if you could explain uh, a, a bit more uh, broadly what happens in its aftermath with Lopez's death. How, how does the region uh, uh, resolve uh, some of the issues of the war, and what are some of the new issues that, that say, Paraguay and, and, and Argentina face in its aftermath? Well, um, I'll tell you, the, if you were to have gone to that part of the world in sometime in the 1850s, I think uh, a lot of lettered people would have told you that it would be very likely that there would be some major confrontation here, but almost certainly they would say it would be a confrontation between Argentina and Brazil. Nobody would have guessed that Brazil and Argentina would come together to uh, defeat Little Paraguay. And uh, Little Paraguay turns out to be a very hard task to defeat, as a matter of fact. So in the aftermath of the war, there were people in both Brazil and Argentina who wanted to find some way to keep the alliance together such that the sort of natural competitions between the Brazilians and the Argentines in that part of the world would not somehow reestablish themselves. Well, they basically fail at this. They, uh, the um, Brazilians uh, uh, negotiate a separate peace with the Paraguayans, uh, which ex- excluding the Argentines. The Argentines, uh, who don't want to spend any money with any great confrontation, uh, are at the same time very anxious to see some of their land uh, questions um, uh, resolved in their favor. So, for example, they make claims on parts of the western uh, portions of Paraguay, for which they had actually very poor claims. And in 1878, there is an arbitration uh, uh, organized by the American president, who was Rutherford B. Hayes, which uh, establishes those territories as definitively Paraguayan. Um, In fact, today, those areas are called Presidente Ijes. It's the only place I know where Rutherford B. Hayes has this presence, as it were, in, um, uh, in uh, foreign thinking. But there, <laughs> but there, I know, from our perspective, this is a rather minor guy, but not there. And um, so the Argentines lose out. And as they lose out, I think they also give up on the idea of incorporating Paraguay. Don't forget that once upon a time, it had been considered a fairly rich prize. But now it was like an empty shell uh, the uh, economy was obliterated. Something like 99% of the cattle had been uh, killed in the war. Um, manpower was non-existent. Um, all of the things that had made the place look desirable once upon a time now lo- no longer looked that way. So um, that means, I think, that the Argentines, in looking for some kind of um, better geopolitical uh, circumstance for their own country, looks more kindly on making deals with the Brazilians. And in the 1890s, there's some land 
disputes that are resolved amicably between Brazil and Argentina. And there's even a little bit of, of admiration here and there, partly because I think the Argentines were now focused on a, a new rival over in Chile, where there was a lot of problems there. It seems, as you know, uh, when once one uh, war ends, another war seems to be willing to start, or certainly rivalries come out, like Iran and Iraq and all of that. Um, in any case, the, uh, um, the circumstances of the, of the war uh, are going to yield much more normal diplomatic relations between all of the parties. The kinds of normal relations that I would say that they enjoy today um, are going to come out of this, as opposed to the kinds of things that had been there earlier. Um, now, there are some interesting um, echoes. Um, about six years ago, I think now, uh, there was a change of government in Paraguay in which the president, uh, uh, President Lugo, was uh, displaced by order of the Congress. Uh, this was something that was legal. The Constitution gave the Congress the right to remove the uh, elected president and, and call new elections and all of that. But the neighboring countries were all controlled at that moment by leftist populists in Argentina, in Uruguay, and in Brazil. And they said, they argued, that this change of government in Paraguay was illegal, and they denounced it, and they started uh, pursuing common policies to isolate the government in Asuncion. Well, first of all, these, these policies didn't work. Uh, Paraguay was enjoying a, a, an economic boom at that time, which these sorts of threats, which turned out to be more empty than anything else, couldn't possibly affect. But what's, what's important about it is the very first thing that the Paraguayans started saying, and I'm talking about the Paraguayans all across the political spectrum, people on the left, people on the right, and people in the middle were all saying the same thing. And what were they, say, what were they saying? They're saying the Triple Alliance is back. They think that this is the 1860s all over again, and they're going to fight us, and we're going to defend our country like we did before. And this is only a few years ago. So uh, these things have long, long memories. When I say that from the Paraguayan perspective, this war is the central event of their history, I mean exactly those words, uh, which, by the way, explains why uh, my books are bestsellers down there, because I tell them, uh, I, I, I talk about something that's so important to their way of thinking about themselves. Um, anyway, so so the history is alive. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. Um, well, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, Professor Wiggum, but I was wondering before you go, if you could tell us what you're working on now. Yeah, now I'm doing something that's a lot harder to put my finger on because of the nature of the documentation. It's not really history. I'm going back to the 16th century and looking at the uh, early contacts between the Guarani Indian peoples of, of Paraguay uh, and the first Spaniards. The reason that this is problematic to work with is because the sources are very thin. And so uh, I start off more or less saying, if you want to consider the things I'm saying as fiction, go ahead and do it, because I can't prove some of these things. Um, but uh, it seems to me that if you want to get around the notion of what identity means, 
you have to understand how people come together, how the uh, um, you create synthetic identities. How is it possible that you have a country where uh, only a tiny percent of the population is Indian, but that 80% of the people speak an Indian language and they speak it on a daily basis? Well, that's where you have to look at the early relations between Indians, between Spaniards, uh, between the Portuguese, and how all of them came together in this sort of cauldron of the 16th century. So that's that's the uh, era that I'm dealing with right now. And it's very um, – uh, I'm, I'm anxious to be doing this because it's something I've always wanted to work with. And uh, um, having spent 20 years on the Paraguayan War, I want to do something, so to speak, for me. And uh, <laughs> And uh, and this is something I've always wrestled with in my own mind. Uh, I even include some of my own poetry in it because um, I don't think that you can um, uh, render into clear English the the kind of meaning of, of certain Warani words, uh, which is the way that the Indian people expressed themselves uh, constantly. You need to find some way uh, to do that. And that's another kind of challenge for me personally not just as a scholar, but, you know, it, sort of the creative thing that makes everybody tick a little bit. You want to, you want to find a way to say, uh, I, I'll give you a for instance. Um, in Guarani, you can't say uh, the, the, the term for shadow without making reference to the sun, because the sun is the thing that creates the shadows. And, and so it is fundamentally artificial to say shadow without reference to the sun. So I translate it as dark of the sun, which comes closer, doesn't quite get there, but it comes closer than other things. Do, do, do you see what I mean? This is the kind of thing I want to get at. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so um, there, there was a novel written about 25 years ago called Hanta Yo, um, where the guy, uh, the author translated it into Lakota, uh, uh, talking about the Indian peoples in the prairies, translated into Lakota and then translated back into English. That's some of the stuff I'm playing with uh, in Paraguay. As I say, playing might be the correct word. I don't know if this is going to be successful. I don't know if the Paraguayans are going to uh, bite into this in the same way they bought into the um, uh, the Paraguayan war thing. But I can tell you this, it's, it's an exciting era. Uh, and these are very interesting people. And it's a great challenge for somebody in the um, latter part of his career uh, to be taking this on. So uh, that's what I'm doing, and I'm kind of happy with it and uh, enjoying myself, and we'll see what comes out. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and, and I, I thank you for taking some time of, out of it to uh, speak to us about your book. Thomas Wiggins, I, ho- I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it much. Best to everybody out there. 